How could I have forgotten to tell you about the series that starts next week? The series is called If I Should Die, it's the biggest thing I've ever been part of. I, I, <laughs> really is. I've got to tell you this. You know, I've heard so many crazy things about heaven during my life, and one of them is that we turn into angels and float around on clouds, twanging on harps with my ADD. I'd be so bored with that in five minutes. I'd want, I'd want something else. And so, guys, I want to tell you, heaven's not like that at all. It's awesome. It's the biggest journey you and I have ever been on. If I should die, it starts next week, and it's going to be great. All right, let's, let's, talk, about, let's talk about the party. Um, I love parties. I always have. From the time I was a kid, I love parties. Parties are about celebrating. And when you're a kid, you know, it's pretty simple. It's uh, birthday cakes, punch, uh, drinks, uh, clowns, and games, and that kind of thing, you know. Um, but as you get a little older, there's, there's, there's different kind of stuff that gets served at parties, and it can cause things to be different. It, it can get out of hand. You know, as birthday parties turn to prom parties, turn to frat parties, turn to office parties, you know, turn to Christmas parties, Things can get a little crazy. So let me just ask you several questions just to get us up and rolling today as we get ready for this. And this first question, please, don't, you don't have to raise your hand and definitely don't nudge the person next to you. Um, did you ever do anything at a party you regretted? Maybe I should ask you this way. Do you fear that you may have done something at a party <laughs> that you would regret if you could remember? Um, we're going to dial it in a little better now. Um, did you ever have to leave a party? I have. I mean, did you ever go to a party thinking, you know, with, we have one set of expectations and you go there and then maybe it's because the people who are there, maybe it's because stuff people start to do and you think, yeah, I got to leave. I can't, I can't stay here. I mean, after all, we always read about things like that on TMZ where people would have been smarter if they'd left the party, right? They wouldn't be in jail. They wouldn't be having a mugshot taken and all that kind of thing. Did you ever have to leave a party? One more question. Did you ever not accept an invitation to a party? because you just knew it wouldn't be good. Maybe, maybe you knew that there would be people there that would be dangerous. Maybe you knew things were going to go on that would cause you not to be safe. Or it could be that you just knew that, I mean, and, and absolutely there's no shame in this. In fact, this is a healthy thing. Maybe you just said, I can't trust myself because if I put myself in that environment doing those things with those people, I might do something crazy. And so because of that, I just can't be at the party. Well, I'm asking that question or those questions for a reason because our, our talk today is called The Party. And it's all about a party. And it happens during the time frame of our series Legendary. I do need to let you know I've done something ministers should never do. I've gotten you out of chronological order. Because last week when we talked about Daniel and the lion's den, that occurs after what we're going to talk about today. That was after the Persians overcame the Babylonians. What I'm going to do today is I'm going to take you back in time to the end of the Babylonian kingdom and how it came about. And I'm sorry for getting you out of order. It's just that our series needed to end here. See, we've been climbing in this series. We've been headed somewhere. This series has all been about one thing, and it is, would you be able to stand for the right thing if right became wrong and wrong became right? What if the circumstances were so inverted that the right thing became the wrong thing and the wrong thing became the right thing? See, here's the thing. Many of us grew up in, in life with people telling us, if you do the right thing, you should do the right thing. If you do the right thing, you'll be rewarded. Lord knows it's hard enough to do the right thing in that kind of environment. But how do you handle it when doing the right thing is considered wrong? Hey, the, the Bible's talked about this for generations in Isaiah chapter 5. There's a verse that says judgment or woe to those who call good evil and evil good. Woe to those who change the signs. I mean, here's the thing. The reason why there's woe is even though the, the, rules, the rules of this world may change, God doesn't change. This may not be the best illustration, but I live in Andover. 
Every once in a while, there's a 30 mile an hour speed limit. I don't like 30 mile an hour speed limits. Just have a resentment. Just keep hearing that song. I can't drive 55. Why did I hear that song in my head? But 30 mile an hour speed limit. I could just say, you know, I don't like 30 mile an hour speed limits. I just, maybe the people that made this speed limit, maybe they didn't meant to, maybe they meant to put an eight here. And so I could get some black paint and I could change that three and two and eight. But I will tell you something. If I drive 80 miles an hour in a 30 mile an hour zone in Andover, even with signs changed, I'm going to jail. Because see, it doesn't make any difference that I've changed the sign. The real authority has made the speed limit what it is. And so I think we live in a world today where the signs are all changed. And, and, and we're not completely there yet. We're, we're a culture that's like trying to decide what it, what it believes. But I've asked you the question, specifically as God followers, can you do the right thing if the right thing is considered the wrong thing? And in order for us to do this series, I'll look back on five young people, and they were in a situation that had already completely inverted. These were Jewish young people carried away captivity into pagan cultures, and from time to time, they were challenged with doing the right thing. And the right thing, in several cases, would have put them at the cost of their life, or at least the risk of their life. You had Daniel, who said, I'm sorry, we can't eat the king's meat. We can't, eat the, we can't drink the king's wine. It's dedicated to idols. We just can't do that. I mean, we'll go to your universities, we'll learn your language, we'll do a great job for you, we'll do the best we can. We're just sorry, we can't, we can't violate our conscience. And, of course, that was the right thing to do for them, for the Babylonians, they thought. Daniel said, it's wrong for us, I can't do it. What about Esther? You know, she said, if I perish, I perish, I'm going to do the right thing. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were told, you've got to bow to this image or you're going to burn this. said, we're sorry, we can't do that. And last week we saw Daniel who was told he couldn't pray anymore, and Daniel said, I'm sorry, I've done that all my life. I'm going to open the windows and do exactly what I've always done. So I'm just asking you, do you and I have what's, do we have it in us? Are we courageous enough? Because I think we have a whole generation of Christians. I'm not talking about new springers. I hope not. I think we have a whole generation of Christians that are kind of timid, kind of mild. And we're not sure what we believe. We sort of follow Christ, but the popular culture tells us we should think a different way. And so we're, we're conflicted and we're not sure. So this whole series has been about this, and, and I'm asking the question, can you stand for the right thing? Can you do the right thing, even if people think you're wrong? Well, I'll take you now to Daniel chapter 5. This was one of my favorite chapters in the Bible when I was growing up, and it's the story of a king named Belshazzar. Should have put an asterisk beside king because he's not really king. His dad is king. His grandfather was Nebuchadnezzar. He was the one that started the Babylonian Empire and made it, I mean, the city of, the city of Babylon there, the capital city, had a lot of the wonders of the ancient world in it. It was the greatest of all empires. In fact, the Bible, God says it was the greatest of all empires. Bigger than the Roman Empire, bigger than the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, bigger than the Egyptian Empire. In fact, the only time one kingdom totally ruled the world was Babylon. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, the Belshazzar's grandfather, is dead. His father, Nabonidus, is on the throne. You don't think about Nabonidus. He doesn't want to be king. He was a king who didn't enjoy being king. He's an odd dude. I, I kind of like Nabonidus. I, I, I think he would be interesting to talk to. Nabonidus liked plant life. He liked growing plants. He liked nature. He liked working with animals. He said, I don't want to be king. I want to have my own greenhouse. So he had a palace a long way away from the kingdom and just let his son Bab Belshazzar run things. Belshazzar was a party animal. And so that's where we meet him in Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. The Bible says, many years later, King Belshazzar gave a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking the wine, he gave orders 
to bring in the gold and silver cups that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple of Jerusalem. Okay, heads up. These are the sacred vessels from the temple in Jerusalem. They're dedicated to Jehovah God. Belshazzar decides that he wants to get those out of the warehouse, and he wants to party with them. Well, the Bible tells us that um, he wanted to drink wine in these cups with his nobles, his wives, and his concubines. Just so that you'll understand, a concubine was a woman who was basically owned by a rich person or a king for sexual purposes, just sexual purposes only. So they brought these gold cups taken from the temple of the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, his concubines drank from them. While they drank from them, they praised the gods made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Well, we have a party going on. Belshazzar has thrown a kegger for a thousand of his best friends and his women. And, they're, and they're, they're, they're drunk, they're crazy. He decides to engage in a little blasphemy while he's at it. This may be kind of hard for us in our culture to understand, but back then, pretty much every culture in the world was polytheistic. By that, I mean they had many gods. They all did. The Egyptians, Canaanites, Babylonians, Greeks, Romans, all of them were polytheistic and had many gods. Now, here's the thing. When one nation conquered another nation, the prevailing idea was our gods are better than your gods. That's why we won. Our gods beat your gods. And so Nebuchadnezzar, or excuse me, Belshazzar is spiking the ball here. He's dancing in the end zone. In effect, he is saying, we beat the Jewish people. Our gods must be stronger than their gods. Of course, we know they only had one god, Jehovah. So he said, we're going to just bring their sacred vessels, and we're going to go out here, and we're going to party them. Now, what you and I know that Belshazzar did not know was that they did not win because their gods, which were meaningless anyway, worthless, were stronger. They were able to take the Jewish people into captivity because God had judged his people. He had been telling them for years, if you don't quit serving idols, I'm going to let you go into captivity. And so really the only reason why they were there was because of God's direction. And Belshazzar was doing a very foolish thing. First of all, it was crazy for him to throw this party and let everything. It was, I'm sure there was an orgy going on. But, but, but to take the vessels dedicated to God, that was crazy. I mean, you know what? The Philistines could have told Belshazzar that was a bad idea from something that happened several hundred years before. See, the Philistines one time had defeated Israel. This was before David became king. And they stole the, the sacred box of the Jews, the Ark of the Covenant. They stole that and took it away to their temple of their god, Dagon. And, and in order to spike the ball, they decided they would put the, the sacred box of the, of the Israelites, the Ark of the Covenant, in front of their god, Dagon, have him tower over it as if to say, we beat you guys. Our god is over your god. Dumb idea. Because the next morning they got up and their dumb god, Dagon, fell over in front of the Ark of the Covenant. God made him bow before the Ark. And they came in. This is interesting to me. They came in. They had to set their God back up. Aren't you glad you have a God who sets you up when you fall and you don't have to set him up when he falls? And so they said, well, that, you know, that was kind of strange. That's kind of freaky. And they came back the next morning and their God had not only fallen over, but his hands had broken off. And they had to super glue his hands back on, set him back up. But at this point, God is not in a good mood. And God just decides to send all kinds of plagues. And he gave all the men who were in the Philistine, you know, in the Philistine nation, he gave them all hemorrhoids. That's in the Bible. I'm serious. That is in the Bible. You tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor? And the Philistines said to the Jews, we don't want your box anymore. Can we give it back? 
So you understand Belshazzar is doing a real foolish thing. I mean, a little history could have given him a real help and lesson there. Well, anyway, you know, it could be easy for us, though. Here we are in 2014, and here we are at New Spring, and we could say, well, that was really dumb for Belshazzar to take the vessels of God and abuse them. Well, before we get off too much criticizing Belshazzar, maybe we ought to think about you and me. Because you know what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? The Bible tells us our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. I mean, your body is a vessel dedicated to God. Many of us are doing things with our bodies that flip God off. Some may be here today and you're in a relationship with somebody who's not your husband or wife. I mean, can you really rip Belshazzar? Well, anyway, let's get away from that for just a moment. But you got Belshazzar's party, and it's rocking on, you know. And, and here's the thing. You know, if, if parties have a theme, and they do have a theme oftentimes, Belshazzar's, his thousand people, their theme was, we're in control, and we can do whatever we want to. You know why Belshazzar was so arrogant? I can answer that question for you with one word. Walls. And historians tell us there are 41 miles of walls around the city of Babylon. Three, three walls. And according to Herodotus' historian, this sounds a little bit over the top to me, no pun intended, but Herodotus tells us that the outer wall was 300 feet tall. Now, here's the thing. If you're an invading army, there was no air power in those days. If you're an invading army, how are you going to get your army to climb a 300-foot wall before they climb the other two? How are you going to drag your catapults over a 300-foot wall? And so, basically, they were saying, we don't have anything to fear because we got walls. Just like some of us feel like we don't have anything to fear because we have the wall of youth. I'm young. What can happen to me? Or I know the right people. Or I got money. Walls. Strange, strange things can become walls in our lives. But anyway, they're having their party. And they're basically saying we can do anything we want to do because we're insiders. But guys, things change. Things change. You ever watch a really loud movie? It seems like cinematographers do this every once in a while. You ever watch a really loud movie with a lot of action, a lot of noise going on? All of a sudden, the movie just freezes and there's no sound. Well, I think that's what happened at the party because while, while, they're, while they're drunk and crazy, you know, a thousand drunken people make lots of noise. Don't ask me I know. I'm just guessing that. <laughs> I mean, and everything's going on that you can imagine and probably stuff that you can't imagine. Well, while all this cacophony is rising up from this banquet hall, all of a sudden, everything gets deadly quiet because you know what happened? All of a sudden, a hand began to write on the wall. Nobody, just a hand. The hand started writing words on the wall, and all of a sudden, it got deathly quiet. That would quieten you up. I mean, not even Stephen King could think about something like that. A hand writing on the wall. Now, as a kid, I loved this story because I, when, when, I, when I knew that the king couldn't understand what the writing meant, I always assumed that the hand was like writing some sort of heavenly language. No, it was writing Aramaic. I mean, suppose you're at a party and everything's getting out of hand, and all of a sudden a hand starts writing on the wall, and it writes the word numbered, comma, numbered a second time. And then right under that, there is the word weighed. W-E-I-G-H-E-D in English, weighed. And then under that, the word dissected. That's all there was. Numbered, numbered, weighed, dissected. If you've ever seen a movie where a cinematographer has caused all the noise to go to silence and a freeze, and then all of a sudden brings the noise back up again, I think that's what happened. But this time, it was not the noise of arrogance. It was the noise of sheer terror because Debbie Belshazzar was wondering, what in the world is going on here? 
Let's read. This is in Daniel 5, verse 7. The king chided for the enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers to be brought before him. He said to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever can read this writing and tell me what it means will be dressed in purple robes of royal honor, have a gold chain, all kinds of bling around his neck. He will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But when all the king's wise men had come in, none of them could read the writing or tell him what it meant. So the king grew even more alarmed, and his face turned pale, and his nobles, too, were shaken. You're just seeing what happens when people who, are, who think they're in control suddenly discover they have no control at all. In fact, I don't have this in my notes, but in one verse in this chapter, the Bible says Belshazzar's knees were shaking so much he had to sit down, he couldn't stand up anymore. Well, down the hall from all this craziness, there's a, a, an elderly woman who's not at the party. She is the queen mother. Personally, I think she was the wife of Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar's grandfather. By the way, we tend to be a pretty young audience here at New Spring. Every once in a while, and I'm not including myself in this because I'm not young, but every once in a while, some of us who are young might be benefited to listen to somebody who's seen a little life. Sometimes we're quick to push, push aside the, the advice of elderly people. It's like, well, they don't understand my world, but who knows? <laughs> they may have seen more life than you realize. And this woman has seen a whole lot of life. I mean, her husband had done some crazy things, and he had had a breakdown for seven years. And she had seen this guy Daniel come in, and she knew that he worshipped the true God. And, and Daniel was the one who understood these kinds of things. And so the queen mother who wasn't at the party, she went to, she went to Belshazzar, and she said, there, there is a man in your kingdom who can help you, but New Spring, walk, work with me here. She said, but he won't be at your party. You're going to have to send for him. Daniel, by this time, is probably 70 to 75 years of age. But the queen mother said, call for Daniel, and he'll tell you what the writing means. These stories play in my head like videos. I've read them since childhood. Every once in a while, a movie will come out about something that happens in the Bible. I never go see the movie because it's never as good as the cinema that's playing out in my head. And I see this moment. Daniel walks in sober majestic in his bearing, 75 years old perhaps, but sun-crowned, as the poet said. Daniel walks in, and, and here's, here's Belshazzar. He's shaking, and he's telling, to, telling Daniel, I'm going to give you all these nice parting gifts, and, and I'm going to make you rich, and I'm going to give you these beautiful robes and all kinds of bling hanging around your neck. And, 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 and here's the thing. This is why I'm getting to this. I hope, for those of you who've been with us in this series, I hope you've gotten something. I hope you've gotten I hope you begin to learn what it sounds like when a godly person has courage. Because you know, godly people who have courage to do the right thing when the right thing is considered wrong, they have a particular sound to them. Not the arrogance of the religionist who says his way is better than other people. They just have the courage to say, I'm going to do the right thing no matter what it costs me. Whether it's Daniel saying, we can't eat the king's meat. Whether it's the three Hebrew children saying, we believe our God will get us out of this. But if not... Or Esther saying, if I perish, I perish. There's just something away about the way a, a courageous God follower sounds. And the king has told Daniel, hey, I'm going to give you all this stuff. I love this. Daniel said, keep your gifts or give them to somebody else. You can't buy me. I'm not for sale. Are you for sale? Is there, is there something that's worthwhile enough to get you to do the wrong thing? I mean, there are a lot of Christians today that just being popular is so big to them that they would, not, they, they would, they would quickly disagree with God. They're for sale. They're for sale. And Daniel just said, I'm not for sale. 
Now he said, I will tell you what the writing means. Your majesty, the most high God, before he tells him he's going to give him a little sermon. The most high God gave sovereignty, majesty, and glory and honor to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. He made him so great that people of all races, nations, and language tremble before him in fear. But when his heart and mind were puffed up with arrogance, he was brought down from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven from human society. He was given the mind of a wild animal, and he lived among the wild donkeys. He ate grass like a cow, and he was drenched with the dew of heaven until he learned that the Most High God rules over the kingdoms of the world and appoints anyone he desires to rule over him. You're his successor, Belshazzar, and you knew all this. Yet you've not humbled yourself, for you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven and have had these cups from his temple brought before you. You and your nobles and your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them while praising the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Gods that neither see nor hear or know anything at all. If I had this sermon to do over again, I would preach from this next line. But you have not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. Whoa, that's a statement. He was saying, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, you're worshiping gods who can't hear you, can't see you, can't help you. And he said, you're not honoring the God. Listen, New Spring. You're not honoring the God who gives you the breath you breathe. But here's the big one. Who holds your destiny in his hands. Guys, I'm asking you today as God followers, if indeed you have made that decision, decide who you honor. Man, our destiny is not in the hands of, of Washington, D.C. It's not in the hands of the Congress. It's not in the hands of the president. It's not in the hands of the Supreme Court or the judges. It's not in the hands of Hollywood. It's not in the hands of Madison Avenue. It's not in, our destiny does not lie in the hands of the power brokers of this world. Our destiny lies in the hands of Almighty God. And Daniel was saying to Belshazzar, Sir, you have flipped off the one who's, who holds your destiny in his hands. And by the way, Daniel said, if you want to know what the writing means, the word numbered and the fact that it's there twice means that your days have been numbered and you're finished as of tonight. The word weighed means you think you're big, but God says he has weighed you in his balances and you've come up short. And as far as dissected, your kingdom tonight's going to be split and given to the Medes and Persians. See, all the time that the party was going on, the Persian army was flooding into the city. Not because they scaled the walls. They just dammed up the Euphrates River that ran right through the middle of town. And the entire army walked in on a dry riverbed under the walls. And the Bible says that night was Belshazzar slain. You say, Mark, what do you draw from that story? Or from that entire series? Are you, are you ready? Number one. The people at the party couldn't read the writing on the wall. Now, the writing on the wall had to do with what was coming next. I mean, they knew about the party. They knew what was going on in Babylon. But the writing on the wall was about what was going to happen later, what was going to happen in the future. One more time. The people at the party couldn't read the writing on the wall. Number two. The people who could read the writing on the wall weren't at the party. I want to say that one more time because we need to have a sobering moment as Christ followers in 2014. The people at the party couldn't read the writing on the wall. The people who could read the writing weren't at the party. There's a party going on in our world and specifically America today. 
And I'm going to be honest with you, and this is, I mean, I'm always honest, but this is a moment of real openness for me. I would like to stay at the party. I like parties. I'm affirming. I'm, a, I'm the kind of person that loves people, and, and I'm not judgmental by nature. Anybody who knows me closely knows that. I just not, because I'm a sinner. How dare I be judgmental of somebody else? And when I'm talking about the party, I'm talking about the culture that you and I live in. I, I'd like, on a human level, I'd like to stay at the party. But I, I can't be at this party anymore. Because see, the writing on the wall is starting to get clear for me. Real clear. My dad was a pastor, and he pastored when I was a kid. Fifty years ago, my dad was calling stuff that's happening in our world today. He didn't call it because he was a brilliant man. My dad never finished college. He was calling it just simply because he knew what the Bible... A third of your Bible is prophecy. Stuff that tells the future. You, know, you can have every electronic device that's out there today that's advertised on television or on the internet, but none of those electronic devices can tell you the future. Only the Bible can tell you the future. And what I see happening in our, and just, just in this last week, what I see happening in our culture today tells me that the party's taking a real turn here. And for the next few moments, we're going to have a real open and frank talk. There's a wedge issue in our culture. By the way, if, if I was a megachurch pastor, is not supposed to talk about these kinds of things. But I never have had any sense. <laughs> and whatever. <laughs> I have many flaws, but I'm not a coward. Whatever flaws I have, I'm not a coward. And guys, you've got to understand, I'm going to have to stand before the one someday who has my destiny in his hands. And I'm a lot more concerned with flipping off him than I am with making our culture find me unpopular. There is a wedge issue in our culture today, and let me give it a little background. For too many years and too long, people who had same-sex attractions and relationships were abused and discriminated against and humiliated. And that is a bad thing. And if we have anything in our current culture that's helpful, it's the fact that We've learned that that's inappropriate, but that's inappropriate for anybody. Nobody should be abused. Nobody should be discriminated against, and nobody should be treated with hostility. But as with our world, sometimes pendulums swing too far the other way, and we're watching that pendulum swing in a really unhealthy way. It's so much so today that anyone who announces a biblical view of morality is considered a hateful person. And guys, let me just tell you something. I, this is the one thing that may surprise you the most. I really don't think it has anything to do with the gay community. I really don't. I think if it weren't that, it'd be something else. You and I need to understand something very clearly, and I don't know if I've ever brought this up in this context. But the Bible has been clear from the book of Genesis all the way through to Revelation. This is a fight between Satan and God. It's not a fight between any particular community or any of us who struggle with a particular failure in our life. This is a fight between Satan and God, and all of us get caught in the crossfire. And I think it's a terrible mistake when we begin to fight people because the Bible says we're not against people. But here's what is going on in our culture today. From the very beginning of time, Satan has felt that he can run this universe better than God does. That's why he revolted against God in the beginning. And, from, and, and Scripture has been very clear on something. There is going to be a season in the future where basically he is going to have seven years in which he basically rules. 
And he is going to counterfeit everything that God has. And he's, in fact, what he really wants to do is turn everything upside down. And we know that there is a leader. We refer to him as an antichrist. There's going to be a one-world government, a one-world religion. And for seven years, that's going to happen in the world. That's clear. It's all over the Bible. In fact, it's all over the book of Daniel. In fact, you can't understand Revelation without Daniel. And if you ever read about the tribulation and the revelation, it can look like this horrific period of time. All you need to know about that is God is just saying, you don't want me? I'll leave the building. By the way, I'm going to take my people with me before I leave. That's why I'm not negative at all about what's going on in our world today. But here's the part that's going to get a little touchy. One thing about Satan is he wants to turn every one of God's truths upside down. And if you go back to the beginning, you see God's starkest truths. In the beginning, God created. Well, we're watching how that's been turned upside down. The prevailing thought today is that the world as we know it with all its complexity is a product of a cosmic accident. Guys, listen, I tell you, I, 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 have no, I, I love friends who are non-theists, but I want to tell you something. In all honesty, if you will believe that this world got here as a random accident, you will believe anything. I mean, you don't have to agree with me. I mean, you can have any kind of theory on how this world got here, but it's got to get here from intelligence somehow. Well, he wants to turn that upside down. He's been pretty successful. I mean, the Bible tells us from the beginning that God made the world for humankind to enjoy, but now we've seen that get turned upside down where the humankind is the enemy. And then the Bible tells us he made us male and female. So I'm not surprised that Satan wants to turn all these things upside down that God has done. I mean, that's, 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 one, that's the oldest story in the Bible. But guys, I want to tell you, there are things happening in our world today that are surprising me, even for where we are. And as much as I'd like to stay at the party... I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to be there. I mean, there's, there's a story that came out of Lincoln, Nebraska. It caught the news. A lot of you may have seen it. In the school district there, there was an outside group that specializes in transgender education that is like giving position papers to the Lincoln School District. And in those position papers, there is the suggestion that teachers not call their students boys and girls anymore, but instead non-gendered names like campers, readers, scholars, and, of course, the one that's caught the most attention that they, they introduce a, or they, they come up with a class mascot called Purple Penguins or something like that. And if teachers need students to get into two lines, they were asked to have the children separate by preferences. Do you like skateboards or bikes? Do you like milk or orange juice, dogs or cats? Just don't say the B word or the G word, boy or girl. Now, of course, the superintendent of the schools, and I'm, I'm sympathetic with him because but yet, on the other hand, is there anything more pathetic than some of these leaders when they try to walk something backward and parse the words? Because actually, his response troubled me more than the other stuff. The superintendent responded to the national commotion by saying, it's a shame that the staff had to dedicate itself to addressing an issue that isn't even based on fact. I feel sad for him. Listen to what he said. And guys, here's the deal. You and I are going to have to parse this stuff. He said, never once has anyone inside our system mandated that a teacher take the words boys and girls or ladies and gentlemen out of their interaction. Well, we know that. It's not inside the system. It was a group that came from outside the system, but their position papers were, di were distributed among the teachers and yet hadn't been mandated, at least yet. But probably the story this week that's caught most people's attention is that in the city of Houston, and Lord knows I love Houston, when I graduated from college, my first church was in Houston. It's a great city. I still love it. But the city, the mayor and the city council have adopted a, a non-discrimination bill, and, and that's a great idea. I mean, I, I, I hate discrimination. 
But this non-discriminatory bill goes so far that there's, a, there's an aspect of it that would allow transgender people to file a complaint if they are prevented from accessing the bathroom of their choice. Well, you know, people in Houston begin to think about, you know, you could actually have a predator, a guy who's a predator who could demand, well, I really need to be into the women's restroom. And so consequently, the people in Houston were concerned about that. And especially there were Christian people uh, of all races who were concerned about this. And so in Houston, the way it's set up, if you want something to be on the, as a, as a referendum on an election, you have to get so many signatures. I had to have like 17,000 or something. I got over 50,000. And they presented them. But the mayor and the city council said, no, 35,000 or so of those are invalid. No particular reason. No proof that they were invalid. Well, of course, it goes into the courts at that point. But here's the thing that caught everybody's attention this week. The lawyers that are working pro bono for the city of Houston decided to subpoena the sermons of pastors who are not even plaintiffs. But in effect, what they were told is you must turn your sermons over to us for our evaluation. And if you fail to do that, you could be in contempt and go to jail for failing to turn in your sermon. And the mayor tweeted this. She said, when sermons are political, sermons are fair game. Let me correct the mayor of Houston. What is not, fair, what, what is not legal is for a church to, or for a religious, or for religious institution to advocate for a particular candidate. And Lord knows I agree with that. I don't have any candidates I'm in any hurry to endorse. <laughs> That's not my job. And I want to tell you, when you get into the issue of morality, that's my world. That's where I'm called to speak to. And here's the thing. There is no law that says a church cannot speak to something that's an open issue for the country to talk about. If that were the case, Martin Luther King could have never advocated for civil rights from the platforms in the South. And beyond that, if you want to go a little further back in history, the abolitionists were people who were in the pulpits of the country crying out that slavery was not only wrong, that it was immoral and it was ungodly. So I want to tell you this. It is the responsibility of spiritual leaders to speak to issues of morality. It's, it's, that's my job. Now, I will say this. Wichita's run so much better than Houston. I don't think my sermons will ever be subpoenaed. I would tell you this. If they want my sermons, I'll drive all my series downtown. <laughs> and I'll show them which ones are the best of all time. <laughs> but you can, call, you can call me arrogant if you want to. Not if they're subpoenaed. Not if they're subpoenaed. See, the thing of it is, things are changing out there on us more than we realize. They're not exactly where they were. I mean, they were already gone when Esther and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel, uh, they're on the way right now. And a lot of us probably haven't been noticing because we've been watching ESPN and playing Candy Crush and all this stuff. You know, <laughs> we're not paying attention like we should. You know, the thing about it is, though, you can say, well, Mark, you know, I, I'm a Christian. I'm a cross follower, and I believe, I believe in godly morality. But, you know, I don't, want to be considered a, I don't want to be considered an outsider. Well, one more time, I need to tell you, things change. And if you study history and if you study Scripture, one thing you learn is outsiders have a way of becoming insiders, and insiders have a way of becoming outsiders. There's a verse in Hebrews that makes me know that God anticipated the culture you and I would be living in. The Bible says in Hebrews 13, verse 12, Jesus suffered outside the city gate. 
Never think that Jesus was crucified on a religious site. He was crucified in a trash dump outside the city. But listen to the verse. The Bible says, so let us go to him outside the camp. Let us be willing to suffer the shame he suffered. Here we do not have a city that lasts, but we're looking for the city that is going to come. In other words, it's okay to go out and stand outside to be an outsider with Jesus because after all, none of this is going to last anyway. The day is going to come where Hollywood is going to begin. Washington is going to begin. Kansas is going to begin. You and I, our bodies are going to begin. I mean, nothing we can see is going to last. Why worry about being an insider in a temporary world? I'm far more concerned about being an insider when Jesus comes. Now, here's the thing. I know, hey, I was born at night, but not last night. There are people here, perhaps, or watching online or on television. You could say, well, that Mark Hoover thinks he's, he is an arrogant cuss because he thinks he just stands up and he must be perfect. And it would be so wrong. I was prepping for this talk, and I was talking to Mary Alice at breakfast one morning. I said, you know, babe, it's interesting to me. The hand of God wrote three times in our world. The first time is in Exodus. When God gave the law, the Bible says the finger of God wrote the law, the giving of the law. The second time, we just read about it today on Belshazzar's wall, judgment for breaking the law. The finger of God wrote law, and then the finger of God wrote judgment. Can you think of the third time? I see some of you can. The third time was when God wore skin and he came into our world as Jesus. And there was a woman who had broken the law. She was found committing adultery in the very act of adultery. She had broken God's law. And the people who brought her to Jesus said, Moses in the law says, stone her, judgment. But what do you say? And for the third time, God wrote on the ground. I don't know what Jesus wrote. I've heard scholars say all kinds of things that are crazy to me. He wrote the Ten Commandments. He wrote the names of the guys standing around who had done wrong things. I don't think he wrote anything like that. I think he wrote something like this. I'll pay for that. Put it on my bill. The three times God wrote in our world, he wrote law, judgment, and mercy. I do not stand for God because I'm a perfect law keeper. I'm a law breaker. I, I've broken most of the commandments, I'm sure, in some form. I don't stand before you as somebody who doesn't deserve judgment. I deserve to go to hell, guys. I'll be the first to tell you if it weren't for Jesus, I'd go straight to hell when I died. And I'd be the first one to stand before God and say, God, you're right to send me to hell. You and I know it. So I don't stand before you as a smart aleck religionist because I don't break God's laws and I don't deserve judgment. I stand before you as one who has read the third writing where Jesus wrote mercy to people who break the law and deserve judgment. Here's my thing. You have to understand, I want to be loving, I want to be gracious, I want to be kind, I want to be accepting of everybody I can be accepting of. Just don't ask me to say that God is wrong. Just don't back me into a corner and demand that I must flip off the one who paid for my sins with his own blood. That I cannot do. I cannot do it. And if it be that I must be an outsider, then I must leave the party. Because I'll love anybody. I'll be gracious to anybody. I just cannot flip off the one who bought my soul 
with his blood. At that point, I must leave the party. But after all, I'm in good hands because he's the one who's got my destiny in his hands. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being at this series. God bless you.